Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NELA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NELA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Amit Bindra. And we are trying something a little bit different today. We wanted to talk about something that happened a little bit more recently or is happening as we record this. So as we may have mentioned a couple of times on the show before, Amit and I are parts of the legislative committee for NELA, Illinois. We sort of, I think it's existed in the past, but it got started again in earnest right after the 2018 election. It started off with just a few folks, Denise DeBelch, Kita, myself, Rainu Thaman soon after joined on, and it was sort of just four or five of us meeting around tables around lunchtime talking about ideas for laws we wanted to get passed and initiatives and ways for Neela and Illinois to get more involved in the process. It has morphed, and we've actually started to have some wins. I'll turn it over to Amit now. Yep, and Max is being a little humble. I think you basically created this committee, and it's done some awesome work. And the first thing we want to talk about is an amendment to the Illinois Wage Payment and Collection Act. Before we get to the amendment, what is the Wage Payment and Collection Act? Good question on it. So I'm going to call it the Wage Act for short or the IWPCA. I'm, I'm going to call it the Wage Act just because it rolls off the tongue a little better. But the Wage Payment and Collection Act is like my favorite wage and hour law that nobody but employment lawyers really knows about and really nobody but employment litigators thinks about on a consistent basis and, and the defense lawyers who help people manage their businesses. The Wage Act is the, the law that basically forces companies to make good on their agreements to pay you. So the example I typically give clients is, let's say you and I have a handshake agreement for me to mow your lawn. And let's say it costs 50 bucks, which may or may not reveal that I haven't mowed a lawn in a long time and don't know what it costs these days. Um, I don't even have a lawn, so so I can't help. There you go. So I mow the lawn and I go and I knock on your door and you go, what do you want? And I say, well, I mowed your lawn, 50 bucks. And you go, well, I only wanted you to take an inch off the top. You cut it too short. I don't like the way you did this. I'm not paying you. So- you know, historically at common law, your only option is what's called a breach of contract action. Basically, we had an oral contract. You offered to make a payment to me. In exchange, I offered to mow your lawn. I did my part. You didn't pay me 50 bucks. Well, the problem with that is that you can't get attorney's fees, punitive damages, any penalties. So often breach of contract doesn't give people any remedies to really make them whole because you still got to pay your lawyer. Alternatively, a lot of low-wage folks don't have written contracts, or even if they do, their claims are not big enough, or they can't, they're just not sophisticated enough to know enough to go get a lawyer for this sort of thing. They just think I'm screwed. Well, the Wage Act is the remedy to that. So the way it typically works is the way the law works anyway, is it says employers must pay final compensation, meaning if you do the work, they have to pay you your final paycheck. So one of the ways we see it quite often is you get into a spat with your employer, you quit, they fire you, something happens, and you don't get the last two weeks of wages, or they deduct from your final pay, or you've got guaranteed vacation days that are supposed to be paid that they don't pay out, an earned bonus commissions that you earned. Anything like that, anything you did the work for that they had, without any wavering, promised to pay you if you did the work, they have to pay you. 100%. There's a couple things I want to highlight, too. Just to step back for a second, you mentioned attorney's fees. Illinois and a lot of states follow what's called the American rule, which is just if you sue someone in America, unless there's a contract or a law that says otherwise, you pay for your own fees. Where the Wage Act flips that script a little bit, allows employees to get their fees. It's really important because wage theft is somewhat easy. 
you know, someone who makes 15 bucks an hour is being shorted a couple bucks here and there every so often, it's hard to justify paying an attorney a lot of money to get that money back. But the Wage Act allows them on a mandatory basis to get their fees, even if they're owed a single dollar. It's a huge deterrent to stop wage theft from happening. Right. And and that's the big issue here, right, is that it's easy for employers who hold all the bargaining power and all of the p- cards and the power, especially for lower wage folks, to just not pay somebody and say, what are you going to do about it? And the Wage Act not only strengthens this, this breach of contract concept, but what it also does is it says you only have to be paid pursuant to agreement. It's very clear not to say contract because very often these things are not always in writing. So if you have an agreement, you do the work, they have to pay you. And every month that goes by that you remain unpaid. So think back to that lawnmower example I gave at the beginning, 50 bucks. Well, after one month, 2% tax onto that under the current version of the Wage Payment and Collection Act. It's 2% per month. And if you win, they have to pay your lawyer's fees, your attorney's fees. So there are teeth to that law. Well, the amendment that our committee proposed was, was really simple. Change a two to a five. Increase those penalties to 5% per month. The reason we selected 5% was not out of the blue. It was that a couple years ago, after Governor Pritzker was sworn in, Representative Will Gazzardi, who's been a really good friend to our committee, passed or proposed a law increasing the Illinois minimum wage law. I think it was Will Gazzardi, increased the minimum wage law. It, Illinois minimum wage law used to have 2% interest penalties itself for every month you worked and you were under the minimum wage for your hours worked. Every month that went by, 2% tacked on in statutory penalties. Well, now... It's 5%. And in that law, there's also something called treble damages. So think about that $50. In that month, if it were a minimum wage violation, it would actually be $150 and then 5% of the underlying 50 tacked on. So you'd be talking about $51. It would be $151, I guess, after one month. But under the Wage Act, we, we weren't asking for treble damages. We were just asking for the interest penalties to be increased. The reason we did that is that this law is really the only mechanism to fight straight up wage theft, just non-payment of wages that gives any power to the employees in, in pursuing it. But for lower wage folks, it's still really hard to get a, an attorney to take on your case for you know two weeks of minimum wage penalties, you know minimum wage level wages not paid. But also, there is no emotional distress or other compensatory damages. So what do we mean by that? Well, if you incur late fees, you know, if you are living paycheck to paycheck and you don't get your paycheck and you overdraw your bank account, you're going to get somewhere between a $30 and $50 overdraft fee. If you can't pay your electric bill or your gas bill and you're late on that bill, you may get assessed penalties as well for that. You know, so there's the consequences to a lower wage person not having that money is much greater than 2% is going to help with in one month. It's not going to solve all their problems. It's not going to stop wage theft. But what it is going to ensure is that if somebody can get an attorney or can pursue it on their own in the Department of Labor, they file a lawsuit themselves or they get a lawyer to help them with either process. In this way, there is going to be some way to get them closer to whole again if this, assuming Governor Pritzker now signs this into law, as it's now passed both houses of the Illinois legislature. When, uh, two other things to note about it too, are A, the wage act can go back 10 years, which is big because the minimum wage laws only That's allow important. you to go back two years or three years. So going back to your lawnmower example, that lawnmower, that individual could still go back. It doesn't have to come, you know, ask for the money the next month can go back 10 years. So 5% is a huge reason for companies to say, all right, look, we're not going to mess around with this. If, you know, if we owe the money, we owe the money. Let's just write the check. And then secondly, you can't waive your right to wages. Those are earned. There's a public policy interest to stop stealing money from people who have done the work. And so that's a big component of the Wage Act too. So 
it's good you bring that up because one of the things you'll see in a lot of wage and hour litigation, particularly, well, actually you'll see it in both blue collar and white collar settings. You'll see it in white collar settings when somebody gets let go, right? And they are now suddenly not looking at getting a paycheck for a while. They're about staring down the barrel of giving up all the money they've earned if their employer is going to do something unethical. And the employer slaps a severance agreement in front of them and says, I'll pay you the rest of the month or something, or I'll give you half your commissions, but you got to give up the right to the rest. Well, you know, that's, that's a really tough decision for somebody. So under the Wage Act, you can't give up your right to earn your money. They can't force you to give away your rights. The other place you'll see it on the other end of the economic spectrum, right, is for lower, lower earning folks, if a company starts to smell a lawsuit on the horizon or people coming, people coming after their money, they may start passing out waiver forms. I mean, you'll see this a lot in overtime litigation where companies will try to get people to proactively, so ahead of time, give up their right to join the lawsuit and earn their money in exchange for nothing. It's just a, an empty piece of paper. So the Wage Act says you cannot waive your rights like that. That's yeah, what I'm just is referring to there. Yeah, you can't sign an agreement that says I won't sue you for not paying me my wages because there is a public policy reason to protect employees. So this ultimately is great work, Max. You know, one question I have, and I know other people have been asking me already is, you know, the, let's say Governor Pritzker signs this tomorrow. Does the two to a five change going backwards or forwards? Or do we know an answer to that question? It's a good question. So it it applies. So the what I will say about the the language in the law in the law as it's passed is it's effective immediately. So the minute Governor Pritzker signs it, those interest penalties become five. Now the law it, it really was just changing a two to a five. So we didn't write into it a representative Gazzardi in, in introducing it to the house, the state house did not write into it specifically. This will apply for violations starting you know if he signs it June first you know effective June first twenty twenty one. It just is effective immediately. My reading of that is you could apply it retroactively that way. I think it'll probably have to get litigated is the answer. I mean, I've seen, you know, on LinkedIn, somebody asked us that question and my answer was it's supposed to apply effective immediately. My reading on that is that it, it'll it apply going backwards. I don't know. I mean, do you read it differently? I think your reading is right. I just haven't done the analysis recently. I think there might be some nuanced issues about when you have penalties, if they can be retroactive or proactive. Yeah, like I have an ongoing, I have, you know, we all have ongoing lawsuits right now where there may be unclaimed wages. I think it might be a challenge to say, you know, the violation that happened in 2018 is a 5% penalty. One way you might look at it is to say, okay, it was 2% through whatever day Governor Pritzker signs it, but starting the day after that day, that now it's 5% moving forward. And that's an interesting point, which I hadn't thought about before. I think there was, I remember doing the research when the Wage Act had been amended, I want to say about 10 years ago to include attorney's fees as a mandatory component. And then there was around that time discussions about, can you go backwards or forwards? This is a little different because you're changing an interest penalty. So it'll be interesting to see how that ends up playing out too. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that we heard in opposition was, oh, this is suddenly defense lawyers who for forever and in perpetuity have said this is not a compounding interest, suddenly came out of the woodwork and started arguing the opposite, that this is going to attack on compound interest penalties to, to innocent small businesses who, who've just made a clerical error. You know, that was a really bad faith argument. I thought I thought it was especially empty because... It, businesses that are not in the habit of actively stealing from their workers typically tend to make good when they're confronted with their mistake. You know, 
a hundred percent. You're not going to let it linger for 12 months to five years because of a clerical error. And I think one thing defense side folks are probably concerned about is you can have individual penalties too. So a business owner who knows that they have not paid an employee properly can be individually liable as well for those penalties. Exactly. And that's one of the nice things about this law is you'll have employers who kind of hide their money and it's a fly by night operation where they don't keep any money in the company coffers. But, you know, they, for all intents and purposes, are the company. Well, guess what? One of the other wonderful aspects of the Wage Act is individual liability for decision makers who knowingly permit or actively collaborate in violating that law. Yeah, um, exactly. So, I mean, it really, you know, it, it, it was a simple change. It didn't happen overnight. We presented this law to Representative Gazzardi and, and quite a few other legislators in 19 and 20 prior to COVID hitting. It made it through the House Labor Committee last year. So when you introduce a law at the state level, and we didn't do it, I mean, we, we lobbied legislators to do it. Representative Gazzardi kindly carried this, you know, it doesn't just go straight to the floor. It it, it gets introduced and then it gets assigned to a committee. It was assigned to the House Labor Committee, passed on a party line vote. And then last year, COVID hit. And for understandable reasons, some things were more pressing. This year, Representative Gazzardi reintroduced it. Maureen Salas of Worman Salas, one of the two principals over there, who's an exceptional and accomplished and knowledgeable wage and hour attorney, testified at the House Labor Committee a hearing on it. At the Senate Labor Committee hearing, we had originally had the bill carried by Senator Ron Villavalam. For reasons I, that haven't been shared with me, Senator Karina Villa carried it instead and introduced it. She advocated beautifully for it. We had a representative from the Illinois Department of Labor who was extremely sharp. She testified, I testified, which was reading a written statement into the record basically and answering questions about this suddenly on the other side, this bill that suddenly everybody wanted to interpret as a compound interest penalty bill, which is fine by me in bringing these claims that they want to keep doing that, but that's not how it works typically. And then nice to have that in the legislative history too. If I ever go up against any of those folks, it might be something I pull out and say, well, you know, Billy, I don't remember what the guy's name was, you know, you, by your own legislative history and testimony, you believe this is a compound interest bill. So I don't see why we would switch it. Not that that, you know, <laughs> and, and then we found out after the fact, I got a text message Wednesday morning or Tuesday morning going, oh, and by the way, your bill passed today, <laughs> it passed the full Senate. So, no. so now it goes to Governor Pritzker. So nice win for workers, nice win for Neela and the legislative committee and, and everybody who, who helped with this. No, it's awesome. It's great work. And a huge shout out to you and Maureen and everyone else on the legislative committee who got it here. Thanks for that, Amit. And, you know, I, there were a lot of people, obviously, who worked on this, but no, it was it, it, it's a nice one across the board. And some I think this is we can say the first bill that we've as a committee gotten passed or that we've gotten somebody or advocated for somebody to introduce and bring to the floor in the legislature and gotten through. And assuming Governor Pritzker doesn't veto it or pocket veto it, it'll be nice. So with that said, let's transition and talk about something that you have, I mean, you're, you're modest about, but you basically have written in large part and driven through. And, you know, let's talk about the non-compete reform work you've done and, and what that means. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and I do want to give a huge shout out there too, to Reno, who we mentioned before, who is one of the essentially founding members of the legislative committee and Jazz Park, because the three of us really worked on this for a while for the last I want to say now two, three years, it all blends together because of COVID, candidly. But I'll back up for a second. You know, the, the goal here was to have some sort of reform non-compete legislation with an emphasis on improving employee mobility while also providing clarity for everyone. And I think one thing that people don't realize, maybe two, about non-competes and non-compete law is, A, generally there's no statute. It's just going to develop by judicial decisions. So there was a law passed a couple of years ago, the Illinois Freedom to Work Act, 
but it was kind of narrow in, in what it did. And so what we've ended up accomplishing is a version of that on steroids. So let's let's back up and talk a little bit bigger picture, because in theory, there are lay people listening. What is it? And we covered this yep. very briefly in a couple of our other podcasts, but just give the Cliff Notes version. What is a covenant not to compete? Yeah, that's a great question. So a covenant not to compete is basically a, co- a company saying to an employee, you can't work for some period of time in a certain area, in certain industries. And so it's a restraint on trade. It's literally keeping someone out of the marketplace in certain sectors. And what's unique about that is it has a lot of political crossover. You don't have the same people kind of always opposing it or in support of it because companies need to hire employees too. So if companies are told, hey, you can't hire this person for two years because they may have done a similar job somewhere else, there's a huge burden on that company too. So it really hurts businesses in some ways. At the same time, the purpose behind these covenants in theory, if they're done correctly, is companies do have certain information they want to protect. And so there, may, there is some rhyme or reason to, well, we should be able to protect certain high-level information with certain high-level people. So there, you know, it's interesting because in theory, you might think, oh, well, you guys are an employee rights or a workers' rights organization. You would probably want to abolish these. But, but that's not what this law does, and I don't think that's necessarily our stance, right? That 100% right. And one nuance I'll add to before I directly answer your question. So there's non-competes and then there's non-solicits, which say – you can't tell an employee that they can't either take away the company's clients or customers for a new job or just raid their other employee base. So that way, if they jump from company A to company B, they don't just take their entire team with them. But yeah, your answer, your question is a good question. We are an employee rights organization. This law doesn't ban non-competes, but it does a lot of stuff to get it. It's, it's a huge step up and it's going to be, in my opinion, though I'm biased, one of the more progressive laws in the country because what it does do is it bans non-competes for all workers making less than $75,000 a year. The, the version that we have in place prior to the amendment and what we've accomplished is the Freedom to Work Act, which only banned non-competes for minimum wage workers. And that came about because Jimmy John just had a standard non-compete clause in all of their employee contracts. So one of their minimum wage sandwich workers couldn't go to Subway. And everyone was just like, well, that's ridiculous. So Illinois was kind of the four, on the forefront of changing that changing those types of agreements and pass this freedom to work act what we've now done is ban non-competes for everyone making less than seventy-five thousand dollars a year but there's other stuff too so it it both protects people who shouldn't have non-competes in the first place while also significantly helping the remainder of the pool well and you know because if you step back and it's funny you think about that jimmy john's example and i i i think inadvertently by creating that situation jimmy john's did a lot of workers a favor because you know to the average person, they may not understand or care about that issue. And it might be hard to get a politician to get off their duff to kind of go fight that issue. But if you if you frame it in the context of the person making nine bucks an hour isn't even allowed to go ply their, their trade or, or earn slightly more at a competitor because of the way you make sandwiches, right? Mm-hmm. Like that humanizes the issue and, and is so preposterous on its face that it makes it easy to, to get motivated about it. But stepping backward, right? Like there are situations where you can think of where a non-compete might make sense for a business to have, right? Like maybe you have a technology that is so specialized and is so dear to you that somebody running off and stealing that information and competing, you know, you devoted your whole life to it. You built this special technology, whatever it is, that would be catastrophic. A hundred percent. And actually Jimmy John's is a good example of this. I talked to one of the attorneys who wrote 
their original non-compete and it actually made sense. They would have a very lengthy training process for their managers. And so they thought that that was a secret sauce in terms of how they would run their, run their business, train their employees, et cetera, their business model. That makes sense to protect. What ended up happening over time, I think, is I don't know if it's laziness or what exactly what the right word is, but they just started putting the same clause in every agreement, regardless of the status of the employee. And so then it became too far. And it led to this chicken and egg issue. I don't know what led to what, but the Obama administration did a lot of research on non-competes and employee mobility. A lot of state attorney generals were upset about what was going on. And it led to significant change kind of across the country. But you're right, there are circumstances where there probably should be a non-compete or some protection if an employee has access to high-level confidential information. So you mentioned that this is one of the more progressive bills in the country. So it, I, I mean, I know the answer to this and teeing up the question for you. I gather that means that every state handles these issues a little bit differently. 100% right. Yep. Every state does these things differently. Some states don't have a law. You know, prior to the Freedom to Work Act, Illinois didn't really have a statute that applied to all employees in the, in the context. Again, it was just developed by judges. What's different about this law versus what other states have recently done is other states will typically just ban non-competes for certain income levels. This law does that, but it does some other things too. So what we did was we kind of looked at statutes across the country to figure out some of the best provisions. One provision we've added, and we talked, it's similar to the Wage Act with a slight nuance, which is a lot of times these types of lawsuits are super fast and super expensive, especially for an employee. You know, someone can end up spending fifty dollars to $100,000 between three and six months, which is just obviously a very high amount of money in a very short period of time. And so sometimes companies don't necessarily need to win the lawsuit. They just want to deter certain behavior or set an example. This law allows if, if a company files a lawsuit and the employee wins, the employee gets their attorney's fees back, which is really big because they don't have that opportunity otherwise. It's also big because the company typically drafts these agreements with a one-sided provision. So only the company could get their attorney's fees. And so this evens the battlefield a little bit and makes a, it's going to really decrease the prevalence of these types of lawsuits. So it's interesting you bring that up and the prevalence of those lawsuits. You know, one of the questions I feel like we all get not just a non-compete work, but in general as well, how is this going to turn out? Am I going to win? You know, is what they're doing legal? Like, do I, you know, what do you think is going to happen? But I think non-competes are a good example of why it almost doesn't matter what the end outcome is in some time, right? hundred percent. You mentioned deterrent to certain types of behavior. You mentioned the cost. Why is it so important to have a, that other, that attorney's clause, attorney's fees clause provision in there, but B to, codify how this works? Why does that matter here more perhaps than in other areas? No, those are great questions. And so the, the big picture is what does winning mean? You know, you can be an employee and you can spend 50 to $100,000 in one of these lawsuits and get a judge that says, hey, you can go keep working. That's fine. But have you really won at that point? And has a new employer won? You know, now you have an employee you just hired who's had to talk to me for the last six months, has to sit in depositions, read legal documents, stuff like that, and just spent a boatload of money. So I don't know if that's really winning. And so a lot of times a tactic on the other side is just to deter, to create a chilling effect, to make it very hard for an employee to take a new job, to want to deal with the process. And a company's making a business decision of, look, if I spend the money here, I can set an example for these next 10 employees and these other companies. And so that's why it's really important that this is in the statute. The other reason, and as you're alluding to this, I think a little bit, candidly, most people don't read what they write or what they sign. They sign agreements, they don't know what's in those agreements. And a lot of times there are non-compete clauses, 
And a lot of times those non-compete clauses have a lot of tricks and nuances to them. And so by making the statutory, companies can't contract around that. They can't have verbiage in there that's going to be one-sided, which is really valuable then for employees across the board. Well, and and you can think of other scenarios too, right? Like let's say it is setting up your own shop, but you came to the company with your own client list. You're leaving with the same list of clients. You're not trying to steal anything. You just, it's not working out. You know, e- even if you comply with the non-compete, you will get employers who are vindictive, right? Or even if there's nothing really in place. And so forget the situation where you go from company A to company B. If you are trying to set up shop on your own somewhere, even if it's outside of the geography of the non-compete, whatever, even if they ultimately do lose the restriction they set on you, right? If you've spent all your money you had allocated to set up that business on your attorney, your clients, your patients, whatever industry you're in have not been able to work with you for that six months, year, year and a half, two years, you've been fighting it out. What have you actually won? You spent all your money, you lost your clients because they got frustrated and went elsewhere. It's to drop one of my favorite historical references. It's a Pyrrhic victory, right? Like uh, there's you congrats. You won the war. Look what you won. You won this barren landscape that is uninhabitable for you, you know, like exactly. And a lot of time too, if a company hires an employee, they can get roped into these things as well. So now they're spending a boatload of money. And so that's a no win for both sides. And it goes back to your question about, you know, we're employee rights organization. This law is also helpful for businesses because it's going to provide clarity on what works, what doesn't work, and it's going to make it easier to hire employees. So who, who fought, you know, it, it's good you bring that up. And this is maybe a good part to kind of to, to bring this to a close. Let's talk a little bit about where this bill came from, because you were you and Jazz Park and Rainer Thaman were really big drivers. It was the three of you, right? Were the big. Uh... We were the big people. And candidly, it was mostly Rainu initially. She came in, thought this was a good idea, asked me to kind of help draft some proposed legislation. Jazz also then um, helped both of us. But, you know, what's what's great about this law, which I really like, is the coalition is very broad. It's not just NILA, Illinois. It involves the Illinois Chamber of Commerce and it. The AFL-CIO eventually supported it, as did the attorney general's office. And so part of the reason is kind of what I was alluding to before. This is an area that both businesses and employees want to get on the same page about because businesses want clarity in terms of how to make these things enforceable, mostly because then they also want to be able to hire employees. So there is this dual overlapping incentive to be able to come up with something great. And one last thing I'll mention about the coalition too is we have a coalition among politicians. We have both a Democratic and Republican co-sponsors, offices from Senator Steens, Senator Hunter, Senator Barrickman, and Representative Burke, they were all awesome in getting this to the finish line. Their staffs were incredible. And again, it was truly bipartisan at every level. And that's the, the part of this that I'm really proud about is it's unique in 2021 to have bipartisan legislation, and we were able to accomplish that. You were. It was really impressive. And I know Jazz and Rainer were also really involved in this. You put in you put in some hours here, bud. So you, you know, and you navigated some pretty choppy waters. You know, you mentioned the AFL-CIO is now on board, but there were periods where you were really threading quite a few needles all at one time of various competing interests in support and opposition. You know, the chamber did some, I never thought I'd be complimenting the Chamber of Commerce, but I have to. They they even did a lot of heavy lifting on their own end to really knock some heads and make sure everybody got in line on this. And that's going to be great. And the Attorney General's office got an private or an enforcement mechanism for their office. So at this point, there was really no opposition. Everyone worked really hard to alleviate everyone's concerns as much as we possibly could. So 
what comes next with this bill? So it should, um, it's passed, I believe, at this point. I think Governor Pritzker would have to sign it. I'd be surprised if he doesn't because there is so much bipartisanship. The bill becomes effective in January. Is there any lingering opposition or are there any groups that, I mean, it sounds like across the board, there's really nothing, not a lot of downsides here. Anybody fighting this one still? I found out today that the vote, I think for, I believe the Senate was 110 to zero, no opposition. And part of it is, the chamber again did a great job of being able to rally support and convince businesses why the clarity is valuable for them. The AFL-CIO got some good provisions for the unions too. There's union carve-outs in this legislation that are super valuable. So agreements signed after January 1, 2022, this bill would impact. I think in hindsight, when there's other legislation or other non-compete cases going on, some provisions of this bill will probably aid some judges who are on defense of certain technical legal issues. But that's really the next steps, and it, it's great where we ended up. So another big thank you to the Legislative Committee as a whole on the non-compete issue in particular. Reno Thamen, like I, like I mentioned before, was one of the original four people around that table in Chiquita's office eating donuts. And I don't actually know that Reno was eating donuts, but she was working on this issue. And this was something she came to the table with because she represents a lot of medical professionals with some really restrictive non-competes and was concerned about patient advocacy and freedom of you know, physicians to move around. And Jazz Park, I know, was in a lot of these meetings fighting out a lot of these battles with you as well and really fought hard in support of this bill. And on the Wage Act, again, I want to thank Maureen Salas for really lending her expertise as well. She and I drove that one. But, you know, the committee in general has done a lot of heavy lifting over the last couple of years, a lot of work to support other groups' initiatives and to drive our own. Denise DeBell was uh, one of the drivers informing the committee. We need to mention her name. Chiquita, one of our former guests, has been another co-chair of the committee with us. Rachel Weisberg's done a lot of work on various issues. Uh, Gail Eisenberg has already been a valuable member as well. And God, I probably should have not have started listing names because now I'm going to forget a bunch of people who've done a lot of work. Well, and I just want to add on to that too, of basically the entire committee. I mean, there was a lot of times where we all send out emails saying, hey, we need witness slips. This is what's going on. And folks answer the call pretty quickly. So I know at the end of a lot of episodes, we try to do a shout out of the week. And I really mm-hmm. want to do a shout out to the entire committee. I think everyone's done a great job on a quick basis of getting things done. You know, like you mentioned Jazz, like Jazz and I had a lot of calls on a Sunday trying to figure out, you know, what are we going to do next? How are we going to get this to the finish line? Yeah. And my apologies for all the names that I, I know Karen Doran has done a lot on the subcommittee for the legislative committee as is Susan Malone and quite a few other people who I am, I promise I'm not deliberately forgetting or omitting names like that. It's just a Sunday and I'm not looking at my list. So, but thank you to everybody on the legislative committee who continues to come to our, our monthly meetings, zooming in or calling in and whatever, clicking those witness slips when, when bills come to the floor in various committees or, or full for, for full votes calling their legislators and the like. It's really important work. It's government in action. And it's, there's proof of concept. If we can put in the work, we can, we can make changes where it's needed. So let's, let's all, let's all celebrate these victories, smile, bask in it and get back to work soon. Exactly. All right. Thanks to everybody as always for listening, please subscribe and share. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.